This is ARRL's Eclectic Tech, a bi-weekly look at the technical and scientific side of amateur radio with your host Steve Ford, WB8IMY. Eclectic Tech is brought to you by ICOM. ICOM, for the love of ham radio, is about the passion for an incredible hobby. Visit ICOM in the community webpage at www.icomamerica.com forward slash community. I'm on the telephone with Dr. John Jones, N0JK. And when the good doctor isn't busy treating people, he writes the World Above 50 Megahertz column that you find every month in QST Magazine. Good afternoon, John. Well, good afternoon to you. John, you, if I recall, did a column a while back on the 222 megahertz band. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. That was actually the February 2020 issue of QST. I've often called it the forgotten band just because so many hams, and occasionally myself included, tend to forget that it's even there. But uh, you're quite aware of it, uh, especially with all the VHF activity you do. I do, and I get quite a bit of correspondence about it, actually almost as much on the 222 band as the 6-meter band. There's a number of people that are very uh, enthusiastic about it, and uh, I get... uh, 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 weekly uh, updates on their activities. So, would you say the relative, and I say relative, lack of activity is primarily due to the fact that it doesn't have a worldwide allocation? Therefore, there isn't a lot of, of uh, equipment made for it. Actually, yeah, you kind of hit the uh, uh, kind of hit the nail on the head there. I was going to go into that. Uh, the The fact that it's not a worldwide allocation is is probably a major ad- impediment to the 222 band. In turn, then the major amateur radio manufacturers, primarily like Asu, Icom, Kenwood, etc., uh, don't market uh, 222 megahertz equipment to any extent. Uh, they've had uh, a couple radios out over the years, but again. By and by, uh, the majority of the radios don't include that band. Uh, for example, like I have a Yesu uh, uh, FT-991A, and you know it's a great little radio, uh, HF through UHF. You can punch up all the bands on a button, but there's no 222 button to push on the radio. And uh, quite a few of the radios uh, don't, don't include that. John, for those people who aren't as familiar with the band, uh, what sort of activity generally takes place there? Primarily right now, what I'm seeing, uh, the people who are really into the weak signal part are doing meteors together and EME is kind of the, the, the primary uh, day-to-day activity. Also, there is tropo activity as well. But uh, with meteor scatter, uh, particularly now with the WSJTX uh, MSK144 mode, people are able to make contacts outside meteor showers. In the past, uh, because of the higher frequency, it was difficult to make contacts on 222 on meteor scatter, except during a meteor shower. But now, uh, people with good equipment can do it just about any day. What are these people using for equipment? Uh, well, that varies, and that brings up a question, is how do you get on the band? Um, uh, it's very individual. Uh, some of the older radios, like the Yaesu FT-736R, included 222. The ICOM 375A was a standalone 222 unit. The majority, though, use transfers, and that's uh, kind of the primary way for many people to get on the radio. Uh, single sideband electronics uh, makes uh, a number of popular transfers that are used, and Dynamics Microwave has a couple of nice units as well. And how much power generally are you running, would you say? 
personally, I just run about 200 watts. I mean, it's like any situation, VHF, UHF, the more power, the better you're going to do. Uh, I would generally recommend if people are serious about it, at least get to the 100, 200 watt level. And if you're particularly serious, uh, you know, kilowatt level is is usually the, the way to go. I would imagine that uh, finding kilowatt amplifiers for 222 megahertz is uh, kind of a challenge. It's it's a challenge, but uh, a number of people have done it. and. Uh, you know, uh, getting up to the 500 watt level actually is not that hard. Do you do roving also on 222? I haven't done it for a number of years, but I've done it. I do more single op portable, and that's when majority of my 222 actually has been from the single op portable, right? operate from a fixed location. With roving and all that in mind, that brings up the issue of uh, propagation. How would you compare the behavior, if you can call it that, of 222 to, say, two meters. It's a better tropospheric band, and the number of people that uh, have been on it for years uh, consider it a, a better tropospheric band. In fact, it's probably our best allocation for tropospheric propagation. It uh, is better than two meters, and it's better than 70 centimeters. And you'll find the openings are often stronger and uh, you know more reliable on 222. And these openings are occurring, what, primarily spring, summer? In other words, with the weather fronts? Um, it depends on what part of the country you're in. Uh, the Gulf Coast gets them during the winter, but uh, for most of us that are in the mid, mid part or northern part of the country, it's usually uh, spring, summer. Now, you had also mentioned meteor scatter. Is there a fair amount of that on 222? There is. In fact, again, that's probably the primary day-to-day mode for the weak signal people is meteor scatter. Okay. And what about FT8? I know there's a fair amount of that taking place on six meters. There is for TROPO. Um, in fact, there's been a migration from single site and CW to FT8 for TROPO on all the uh, higher bands, such as 2 meters, 222, and 432 megahertz. Does sporadic E propagation ever get that high in frequency? It does. It's rare, but it, it does. Um, usually every couple of years, there are difficult openings to catch. There's probably maybe a half dozen or so that are known. When an opening does occur, and I'm getting back now to the tropo openings, what sort of distances are you seeing? Uh, I mean, typical tropo dip distances from a few hundred miles out to a thousand, fifteen hundred miles, depending on you know the fronts and what's uh, creating the tropo. And it's been worked across the Pacific too, from Hawaii to California. Oh, really? They've done that? Oh, yeah. That's impressive. I remember as a as a kid, uh, I lived in Ohio, and uh, this is before I was even a ham as such, but whenever the thunderstorms would come through, in the wake of the storms, I would swing my uh, family's TV antenna around and catch uh, all of these UHF stations that suddenly would come drifting up out of the noise, and uh, I presume that is tropo as well. Most likely it is. Um Anyway, Fred Cage-7Y, when he was out on the, the Big Island, operated uh, from uh, Mauna Loa, uh, about he was, uh, 7,000 feet above sea level, and he caught a good opening on Tropo to California. He worked people even using handhelds on FM. The signals were so strong. And uh, again, he noted 222 had uh, usually the stronger signals of the different bands. If you were to give advice to somebody who ha- had some interest in trying 222. What would you say? Well, it depends on what 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 their interest is. I mean, if you just want to make a few contacts, you can do it on FM or a handheld. If you're into the weak signal part, um, again, I would refer you know to like the QST article I wrote, and probably try to meet some people that have done it. Again, 222, you're going to have to do do, do a quite 
quite a bit more on your own to get set up and going on it versus, say, getting on two-meter uh, weak signal. What about contesting? Is that uh, reasonably active on 222? It is. Um, again, you know, it's extra points uh, for the people in the contest and making count the grids, too. So you'll see uh, activity, uh, you know, in the contest, particularly. In fact, I just got an email um, today from uh, Mike K7ULS in Utah, and he made a couple of uh, meteor scatter contacts on 222. He'd worked uh, W7XU in South Dakota and ND0B in North Dakota. And these were non-shower meteor contacts. He just got on there, they ran, and they completed. Are you uh, mostly a contest operator, John, when it comes to this band? Probably more so. Uh, most of my day-to-day operations probably just more on 6 and 2 meters. I get on 222 for the contest. Again, I don't have anything really set up home at home on 222 at the moment. By the time this podcast airs, we'll be beyond the uh, ARRL 222 and up contest. But has that contest at least stirred some activity in your opinion or not well honestly i don't think it's made a lot of difference um i think um you know people get on for that contest uh, as far as for uh, contest activity on 222 you'll see more of it in the major uh vhf contest that like the june awrl and the september awrl contest what typically happens is that you'll work people on either six or two meters then you move them to the other bands you don't just simply uh, some people can make contacts just calling CQ and 222, but more commonly, you contact somebody in another band and move them to 222 for the contact. Well, when you're out doing portable, what sort of equipment are you using? Uh, for 222, and I've got kind of an unusual transfer. It's actually a 6-meter IF, so I run it into the 6-meter rig, and so one of the old uh, Hans-Peter microwave modules transfers, and so it, it takes 6 meters in, 222 out. And it's about 10 watts. Huh. I've never heard of that. They're, they're older units. They were, this is made back in the 80s, but you know, it still works. And what sort of antenna? Um, what I've used um, in the past, I've used a Quaggy. Oh, yeah, I've heard of those. But that's kind of big for portable work. So I made a smaller uh, Yagi that's a little easier to handle. It's on like about a 10 foot boom. But the Quaggy worked, worked very well. It's just, it's kind of kind of large. No, I can appreciate that. Well, thank you very much, John. This has been very informative. Well, that's good. And uh, again, I hope people uh, get on the band. And again, uh, there's uh, a number of people that are just very active. And one of the big pushes right now is to get to work all states on 222. And there's, uh, I think, one or two people have done it, but there's a number of others that are are striving towards that goal. And you can also do EME on 222. And uh, it's actually an easier band for EME than, say, two meters in terms of uh, the antenna size is smaller and uh, it works well. Excellent. Thank you very much, John. All right. Good day. I would imagine that most of you remember the famous stand-up comedian, the late Rodney Dangerfield. Yeah, remember his signature line? It was, I don't get no respect. Well, when it comes to amateur radio, in my opinion, coaxial cable don't get no respect either, at least among some of us. The vast majority of hams, and frankly, even veteran hams, tend to regard coaxial cable as just that wire that goes between your radio and your antenna. It's really much more than that. It's a feed line that transports RF energy from your radio to your antenna and from your antenna back to your radio. You might think there isn't much to get excited about with coax, but in truth, that coaxial feed line is one of the most critical components of your station. Without coaxial cable or a different feed line of some kind, Your radio will be as deaf as a post, and your signal will go nowhere. That's why it pays to think carefully about the type of coaxial cable you might use in a given installation. 
What makes shopping for coaxial cable tricky is that you have a number of factors you have to take into account. For example, how much cable do you need? In other words, how long will the cable be? No matter what kind of feed line you purchase, they all have loss, and loss increases with the length of the cable. There's no way around this. Well, unless your cable is made of superconducting material and bathed in liquid helium. Now, that may be a lossless cable, but I digress. The other factor you have to consider is the frequency on which you intend to operate. Not only does loss increase with the length of the feed line, loss also increases with frequency. Loss is measured in decibels. In fact, when you see coaxial cable for sale, you'll see it rated in decibels per 100 feet. They're talking about the loss in decibels in that particular feed line over 100 feet. However, as I just said, the loss also increases with frequency. So when you're shopping for coaxial cable, you need to find a variety that will give you the lowest loss for the length you want at the frequency you intend to operate. Or perhaps I should say, at the highest frequency you intend to operate. Now you'll notice I haven't brought up the touchy subject of standing wave ratio or SWR, but we'll get to that in a moment. Here's an interesting example. Let's say you have an 80 meter antenna and it's about 100 feet from your radio. Now, if you connect good old-fashioned RG58 coaxial cable to that antenna, and for a moment, let's assume the SWR at the antenna is very low, less than 2 to 1, you're going to realize a loss on 80 meters of just a little more than half a dB. That means if your radio puts out 100 watts, you're going to lose about 14 watts of power before it reaches your antenna. By the same token, by the way, you're also going to lose a certain amount of receive energy in that cable between the antenna and the radio. The good news, though, is that most radios are exquisitely sensitive, so usually they more than make up for the loss. So, overall, a loss of half a dB at 80 meters is entirely acceptable. Now let's take that same cable. That was 100 feet of RG58 coax, right, going out to the antenna from your radio. But this time, we're going to connect that cable to a 70-centimeter beam antenna. One I just happen to have laying around, right? So the cable remains at 100 feet, but you've increased the frequency quite a bit to the neighborhood of 440 megahertz. The result? Well, brace yourselves. Assuming a nice flat SWR, your loss skyrockets to an astonishing 9 dB. That translates to you losing 80% of your power between the radio and your antenna. I'm guessing you wouldn't be very happy with that, and I wouldn't either. So how do you fix this? Well, you're going to have to replace that RG58 cable with something that has much less loss at 440 megahertz over 100 feet. One option is a cable made by Times Microwave known as LMR400. However, at 440 megahertz, 100 feet of LMR400 will still lose about 3 dB, and that's about half your power. That's an improvement, to be sure, but you're still losing an awful lot of energy. 3 dB is a 50% loss, and in my opinion, that's still unacceptable. This means you may have to go with something like, say, LMR600, which some hams call poor man's hardline. At this length and frequency, the loss there drops down to 1.7 dB, and that's good enough. On the flip side of all this, if the distance between your radio and your antenna is relatively short, like in a mobile situation where the distance may be only, say, 10 feet, you could even get away with using RG58 at 440 megahertz because the overall distance of 10 feet results in a loss of less than 1 dB. 
I promised I would bring up the topic of SWR into the discussion, and I won't go deeply into this because most of you are aware of the problem. But for those who aren't, the standing wave ratio refers to the so-called standing waves in your feed line. The standing waves are caused by a mismatch between the feed line and your antenna. That's an impedance mismatch. If you have a perfect match, the SWR is one-to-one. The less perfect the match, the higher the SWR becomes. Some hams really become obsessed with SWR, more than I think is really healthy. Now, this is not to say that SWR should be ignored. Not at all. But it's easy to really get wrapped around the axle and begin to think that it's extremely important and must be reduced to -to one-to-one at all cost. And that simply isn't true. Let's go back to the example of our 80-meter antenna fed with 100 feet of RG58 coax. With a perfect match and a 1-to-1 SWR, the loss in that feed line in 80 meters is less than 1 dB, like we said. However, let's say there's a mismatch where the cable connects to the antenna and the SWR rises to -to 2-to-1. What happens is that a portion of the radio frequency energy you're sending to the antenna isn't radiated, but instead it's reflected back down the cable to the radio. When it reaches the radio, it bounces back toward the antenna, back and forth and back and forth, and while it's making all these trips at the speed of light or something close to it, a certain amount of that energy is being lost as heat. With a 2-to-1 SWR, the loss rises by just two-tenths of a dB. That's hardly worth worrying about. With one exception. Our modern transceivers are designed to accept a relatively narrow range of impedance, and the resulting SWR mismatch. To prevent damage to the transceiver, they usually include so-called foldback circuits. The circuit detects when the SWR is increased beyond a certain level. In many cases, that trigger level is usually about 1.5 to 1. And when it does, the circuit automatically begins reducing your output power. This is why so many transceivers these days have built-in antenna tuners. These aren't wide-range tuners for the most part. They're designed to deal with SWRs up to about 3 to 1. So basically, they're there to compensate for an elevated SWR and provide a match so your radio doesn't reduce its output. Once again, I don't mean to say that SWR is not important. At the extreme, it can cause horrendous loss in a feed line. So it does pay to keep your SWR as low as reasonably possible by making sure you have a good match at the antenna. Or, if you can't achieve a decent match at the antenna, you'll need to use an antenna tuner like the one built into the radio or perhaps an external tuner to bring that SWR down to the point where your radio produces its full output. Reducing the SWR to make it acceptable for your transceiver is a fine thing. But here's an important point to keep in mind if you use an antenna tuner to do this. Even though an external antenna tuner might provide a one-to-one match for your radio, and your radio can dump all of its power into that tuner, and beyond, the SWR between the tuner and the antenna remains unchanged. You still will have that SWR-induced loss in the cable. It hasn't gone away. So if you're about to go cable shopping, take these easy steps. First, measure the distance from the radio to the antenna. Choose the highest frequency on which you intend to operate, not only now, but perhaps in the future. Then, Get on the internet and use Google to find an online coaxial cable loss calculator. There are several of them out there. In fact, uh, KV5R has a pretty good one. Use the calculator to determine the cable that gives you the lowest loss for the frequency and the length. You may want to pick a couple of options because costs can vary all over the place. Be practical, though. 
I mean, of course you want the lowest possible loss, but you quickly reach a point where the lines on the cost-benefit graph merge. If money didn't matter, we'd all run expensive hardline cables to our antennas, right? But for the most of us, just getting the best bang for the buck is good enough. Tune in again for the next episode of Eclectic Tech, produced by ARRL, the National Association for Amateur Radio. Music is provided by Purple Planet at purpleplanet.com. If you have comments, email eclectic at arrl.org. This episode is copyright ARRL and all rights are reserved. I'm Sabrina Jackson, KC1JMW. See you next time.